welcome. Legally Brief presents Changing Our Institutions. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer who works with private and public companies, educational institutions, and sports organizations to identify root causes, confront historic failures, and boldly implement change to our institutions. This podcast is for corporate change agents, disruptors, and mindset mavericks who are committed to making our institutions work better for themselves and the next generation. I want to remind you that while I hope you enjoy every episode in the series that we're doing on changing our institutions, the content of this programming is not a substitute for speaking directly with an attorney who understands your unique circumstances. If you're looking for past episodes or information, please head on over to my website. There you'll find information and you can sign up for newsletters and you can learn more about me and my practice. I'm glad you're here. Let's get ready and let's talk and make some changes. Hello again and welcome back. Today's episode, we are featuring Katherine Starr, who just as her name applies in so many ways is in fact a star. She's a star from the fact of the athletic world, having competed in more than one Olympic Games. She's also an author, a survivor of sexual abuse, and I consider to be a friend and has a compelling story that I know that the listeners of Legally Brief would be interested in. And we're going to, and I'm happy to have Catherine because there is so much going on in our world right now. You know, if you are at an age of, it doesn't matter, but I'm just putting this in the context. If you're at the age of say 50, 40 to 50, 50 and over, what you are living through and what you're going through right now, I'm speaking specifically as to the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. We're also celebrating right now the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which I'm going to ask Catherine this actually touch on, which expanded the accessibility that women and girls have to sport. All of these things are going on right now in our world that are directly impacting women. And I know that Catherine, having competed in the 1980s and and after that, that you have seen so much over the span of your life. So, you know, go ahead. I'm not going to waste time, you know, giving one of these formal introductions because you and I do so well. We've spoken in the past. I know so much about you, but I want you to just jump right in and give the listeners kind of a, just a brief background, a history of yourself, you know, both personally and professionally and athletically. Oh, awesome. Well, first of all, Judy, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And for those of you that don't know, Judy and I did a series and we really need to get it on your website as well, an excellent series on integrity and sport. And uh, so uh, and if you want to listen, that's a five-part series that just tells you how well that Judy and I, you know, can uh, have a conversation and really do a deep dive into the issues surrounding sport and certainly abuse and, you know, how to prevent it. So 
I have over 10 years ago, I started an organization called Safe for Athletes, Safe Number Four Athletes. And what we did was um, I reached out to my old athletic director and said, hey, can you help me? And who's prominent, Donna Lopiana, who's prominent in, you know, sort of women's sport and policy and was president of the Women's Sports Foundation, foundation for, I think, almost 30 years before she went off on her own. And, you know, having a sort of a, a rich history, certainly in the sports world, and one of the things that I recognize about myself and I think it's true for anybody who's been an athlete is once you're an athlete, you're always an athlete. And I know there's sort of a saying, once you're an Olympian, you're always Olympian. It's always present tense. So for anybody out there who says former Olympian, know it's an honor and it's a privilege to be able to, to recognize oneself as an Olympian. It's an accomplishment. So for all those Olympians out there. And so, and then most recently, um, earlier this year, I released um, my memoir called Rescue Me, a powerful memoir by an Olympian. And, uh, and I think we'll be diving into that um, today. And But anyway, thank you again, Judy. And I so look forward to our conversation. Absolutely. So let's do just that. I think that's a perfect segue. You mentioned that you have been working on, more important, you, you lived it. If it's a memoir, that means that you've lived it. Why share this written form of your life? You shared your life so much in a very public way. As a top athlete in swimming, you shared yourself early on. You know, we know that to be an Olympian, you start working full time in your adolescence, in your youth, and throughout your collegiate years, you know, your 20s, you're staying in peak performance. So you've been sharing your whole life. Why do it again in this written form? What was the purpose of this memoir and why share it? Well, one, I mean, there's several reasons, but one of them is certainly like life after trauma because there's, I mean, just the 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 suffering and the, and the internal battles that you go through. And I really wanted to write that down. Like I wanted to capture my experiences and I wanted the, you know, someone to understand what one somebody, what somebody else was going through. And then, you know, so as well as, you know, people sort of ask this question, why didn't you say anything? Like, you know, or why didn't you say something earlier? Or like, you know, how did this happen? And nobody, you know, reported, nobody said anything. You know, so there's a lot of you know, to ask those questions a survivor, first of all, it's one, not a quick answer. And then two, and hence why it, my book is about 322 pages to answer those questions. Because it's really putting the pressure back or putting the sort of you're re-victimizing the people who've had this experience. Because the question in return is, why didn't you say something? And, you know, because what I find is that often people were aware and they didn't say anything. So I'm writing from my perspective of everything, you know, just sort of the evolution of, you know, when I started swimming at three years old and what that meant and how that changed the dynamics within my family and really how I moved and progressed into this identifying from, you know, just being a human to now really identifying myself as, as a swimmer. And so when the change of that identification comes is when you are now susceptible to harm in that environment. 
So, and, and I felt like I, I did a really deep dive into explaining that in a way that nobody else has, has really understood what it means to be an athlete, to pursue your dreams and the dangers that lurk in the background. And, and they're all there. And so I really felt that if I could bring all of those elements into one place, into, you know, into a book, into um, an experience of, you know, just witnessing the lifespan from my three years old until my uh, puppy in today's life. So, um, and it really sort of wraps it all up, but it's, uh, so anyway, so that's kind of, you know, I think I, if I've answered your question and went off. Do you have answered? You've given us exactly the purpose for understanding to share and to give it from your perspective. And it goes without, well, it shouldn't go without saying that what in particular you're talking about being re-traumatized, the experience, you are, for individuals that may not know or who are being introduced to you, what you're speaking of is the sexual abuse, the sexual violence, the sexual trauma, the absolute violation by your coach, your swimming coach, over a number of years of being groomed, being just being violated. And that's, I want that to be clear that that's what you're speaking of. So you tell a story in the book that is so vivid and it lit, it rings, it resonates so much with me of how you're in your early experience and you're have your swimsuit on in the pool and just the feel of the water and the texture. And even when the swimsuit would touch the bottom of a pool and it would have those little pools on it or, you know, the little knots that your swimsuit would get. And what rang true for me was something that often has a reader, you know, white knuckling it. Because what I felt is that you were conveying such a purity and a love for this new thing. Here you are, young, new to the world. Everything is amazing. So for example, I still remember the first time I saw my kids eating an an Italian ice. It was like they had found the promised land. That's the same thing that I that you had conveyed in your book. And then what, what I mean by white knuckling it, you know that when you just said so many things lurk out there, you get that feeling that someone is going to take advantage of this. Someone's going to see this pure pleasure you're experiencing. How, if you can recall, what do you tell us about in the book about when this grooming, when this pure delight and pleasure in the water starts to be interrupted by the lurking, the coach? So one in, a, in sort of in a professional standpoint, there's a term called imminent achievement. So the stage or the age of imminent achievement. So which that doesn't happen until you really hit puberty. And I apologize for I have a, a very uh, talkative uh, background, so she is attending uh, this podcast. You have a co-author. Yeah, so she, her picture is on the on the back of the book. Great. So uh, you know, and I thought she'd be kind of quiet because um, I have a you know beautiful bed right next to me, and but no, no problem. She wants her credit, as she should get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So she's kind of like. Pay attention to me, mom, in the powerlessness over this relationship. And so anyway, so, but going back to the sort of like, so the 
because I really want to dive into grooming. Let's let's talk grooming. So, and and it's certainly something that I talk about from an expert witness um, perspective and really where I get brought into in in that area. So, so grooming is, um, and sort of the difference between grooming and sexual harassment. So let me just put these two out there. So then I can really go back and dive in and kind of talk about when this started. So sexual harassment, we know, is unwanted attention. You don't want it. And it's very clear that it's happening, and it's very clear that you don't want it. And you can correct me on the legal side of this, um, but this is sort of just the generic thing. Grooming, on the other hand, has a perception that it's desire. And so, and that's where, you know, when people judge and people make, you know, sort of these claims about leading up to something, because you have a positive response to an event does not mean that you desired it. And so when you look back and you look at the grooming, and this is where I feel like I really opened it up for people to understand of what are the markers, right? So we first identify my first chapter is called Pure Passion. And you can go read the the first chapter on my website at katherinestar.com. So you can go read that for free and Pure Passion, and you'll certainly be able to see how I started uh, swimming and just the the naivete and the desire and everything else associated with it. And then I get into the awareness that I wasn't just to have passion for swimming. I now get into the awareness that I'm actually good at it, right? So, and how do I know that, right? So I know that because I win, you know, I'm winning as a young child. I'm having a different experience between my siblings with my parents and certainly my father. There's a very strong connection and role with my relationship with my dad throughout the whole story. You know, and so as soon as I have this awareness of, you know, how life changes around me by my success, I become powerful. That is my power as a young person. And so when you start to develop your own power, right, that's when I feel that there's a power imbalance because between you and the coach, because you're the one that actually has something to take now. You didn't have it before. Mm-hmm. And so when you have something that somebody else is going to desire and you don't have a response to like, you just know you love it, right? So you have this thing you love and it's creating this environment around you that you have an experience with. And now you're vulnerable to like everything around you. You're vulnerable to many parents do the reward recognition system. And I know we talked about that in our previous videos that we did, uh, a podcast that we did together. But that's where the vulnerability and then that's where like the real grooming starts is when it's no longer you're exchanging and the motivation tool or the coaching tool or the influential tool starts to affect you differently. Then you're susceptible to other influences coming in. And so we can certainly go more in depth into that, but that's kind of where I would go and just to have like a, a, a deeper understanding of grooming. And I really go into it around all the people, players, and characters that are in my life. So it sounds like you're saying that the, the grooming, the global, the bigger grooming process doesn't only include, say, the immediate perpetrator, and in your instance, the coach, but it also can either be implicitly or explicitly supported, the ecosystem supported by those 
in others in your environment, such as a parent. And I know that from our prior conversations, we've actually kind of pieced apart the whole idea behind alignment and for a parent to be aligned and an athlete to be aligned. So am I getting at kind of the the genesis of what you're saying, that it's the ecosystem of where a child, a child athlete can be groomed, not only includes the perpetrators, but includes others that may not be aligned with what they think and may make this child susceptible, exposed or overexposed to individuals in authority? Is that is that kind of also a part of this? There's a triangulation model, right? So you have the abuser slash groomer, right? And then you have the victim and athlete in this thing. And then you have the subgroup of bystanders, onlookers, whatever, you know, sort of those terms are used interchangeably. And so in that category, right? So, so as an athlete, I look in, so all the influencers are in this onlooker bystander category, okay? So whether it's your siblings, whether it's your friends, your teammates, your parents, all those people in that onlooking category, what their actions do support the ability of the abuser to be the abuser. So if you see, and so, and so like, but they're also getting groomed. You have to also understand your parents are getting groomed your teammates are getting groomed. Like, what does that mean? You're sort of, you're groomed into silence, right? When you start looking at who all those players are and in that area, you as the victim are looking at these pool of people around you and making a determination about the event, you know, about, and it strengthens the abuse and really kind of puts you further away from help and resources because they've silence. They, they support the abuser in their silence and their action. And I get into these dynamics, not from a technical standpoint, but from my love for swimming, my love for my father, my love to please, like, all I want to do is be successful. Like I was trained and groomed within my family about what it meant to achieve, right? And many people, you know, you want your kids to excel, right? And so I don't, you know, like if you're in sport and people will participate in sport, if you're really committed to it, you're committed to excelling. And as soon as you're committed to excelling and then you're vulnerable to this infrastructure, if you don't understand like what's going on around you. And so when you start to put people, places and things like in those slots, so it can explain from a technical standpoint into an actual like storyline that you can see and witness. And, you know, you can look at it and be like, well, you're parents. And I'm like, you know, they're a role in this. But let me also explain, parents get groomed. No one's blaming them. You have to understand that they too were groomed into that role. And and there's a bigger picture, right, of what the goal is of the Olympic movement or a professional support role. There's the bigger goal within that. So, and when you're in pursuit of anything, that's where your vulnerability is because you have to understand one, what you're pursuing, and then two, what are you sacrificing or missing along the way? In your, in the memoir, at what point, because this is from your perspective, as you were, as you stated before at the top, when we first started discussing in your perspective, when were you most open and susceptible now to 
for the coach to make that first overt move after kind of the the grooming of the environment, the use of your parents to assist, unwittingly assist. When do you recall that kind of first movement, that first overt? We know that there were lots of implicit, unknowing actions that he took. When in your mind and in your recollection, do you recall that first kind of overt contact? So that's a really great question. So I think we might even had this conversation about this story before. So there was a point where I was 10 years old before I moved to England, and I was training with the high school kids when I was 10 and, you know, big, you know, athletic boys. And and we had a week off of training. And so I was all excited to like not have to swim for a week. And I had just broken all the state records. I, you know, I was MVP of all of them, you know, just winning every race and, and everything. And then I find out that this week off that I actually had to go swim and train for the week. And I was so bummed. But then I was like, well, you know, I'm with, you know, the older kids. And so therefore I'm going to have to, well, I just have to train with them. You know, it's just part of like the success of being 10 with these older kids. Right. So I get to the pool. And so my mother drops me off at the pool and I go and there's no, like the school was shut down. It was spring break for the school. And I was the only person that was there. And I was the only person that had showed up for practice. And then I was told I was going to be the only person who was training this week. And it was only me who didn't get the week off. And, you know, and so, of course, that like sent me into a tailspin and upset and vulnerable. And then I had to was given us and there was no lights on in the pool. And then I was given a set of 10 500s, which is ridiculously and boring to begin with and also very difficult. It's just not a fun set. So anybody who's swimming, even if someone told you to do that today, you'd kind of roll your eyes at it and not want to do it. And so in the middle of that set, I got out after, I don't know, maybe like three 500s. Um, I did not do the whole thing. And like my goggles were filling up with water out of the turn. I was crying in my goggles. Like, you know, it was just like, it was just miserable. And I stopped in the middle of one of those 500s and I got out of the pool deck, you know, and said, I'm done. I quit. I'm done. And I was so fearful. My actions were so fearful that I'm like, oh, how am I going to tell my dad? Like I was going to lose, like I was on the top of this pedestal of, you know, being just the star kid, like when nobody can beat you in anything except for breaststroke, but that's a whole nother conversation. You know, and just to go from like just this intense fear of I'm a failure. And, you know, and so, but then at the same time, I thought, well, my mom's going to come pick me up. I had dry hair now instead of wet hair when she got there because she came at, you know, the time that practice would end. And, and this is pre-cell phone days, in case you're wondering. <laughs> There's no texting. Of course, right? <laughs> Just to put this in context of the life that that we used to live, you know, and so when my mother got to the pool deck, he wanted to, the coach wanted to talk to my mother. And, you know, like, and I was not included, but I was visually watching the body language of this situation. And of course, I make up a story based on the body language. But what I had learned from that was my mother, like, supported the coach. Like, my mother went with you know, like whatever he was saying, it became like, 
child wrong, adult right. And so there was like this theory, this thing that I didn't like. And I didn't like that there was this automatic, you know, you're a minor, therefore you have no value, you have no input, you have no, you know, nothing here. And then the dynamic, which my mother, you know, she stayed at home, like she was that stay at home mom. And I saw her so subservient to the coach that I knew that she would never defend me. And it's not because she didn't love me or didn't or wouldn't want to, right? That wasn't it. I knew she had no defenses. Like I knew she had no defense against this kind of bully coach. And so when I recognized that, I knew that I was completely vulnerable. Like, and I didn't know what I was vulnerable for. I wasn't like, oh, I'm vulnerable for sexual abuse. I didn't know any of that. What I knew was, or what I felt was, is that I no longer really could rely on my mother to protect me in these tougher situations. And so therefore, she was of no value to me, not in like a disheartening way. That's not what I mean by that. But it was like, well, how can I go to my mother when she can't defend herself against the same coach that was just a bully and was harmful to me? Like, where am I going to go? So, and I talk about that story. And and the reason I sort of go into more detail about it now is when you ask, when was that point? That was my awareness of the the unbridled power and influence that a coach has on an athlete. Wow. That is the unbridled power. That has to speak or it has to amplify what you're interpreting. I've always been a strong believer that children have an intelligence that even sometimes even I'm a little uncomfortable because when you use the word children, it conjures up lesser than not knowing. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Dr. Shafali. She has been tirelessly, she's a psychologist who has advocated for the empowerment of and the equal voice and the equal recognition of children to self-determine, to speak for themselves and to be regarded. She actually speaks on a larger sense of, you know, debunking the myth that only adults know and hold the voice of a child. Kind of what you're saying and that how you instinctively knew is what I'm hearing. You instinctively knew, even at that young age, that you didn't have a long conversation with your mother about it or with, you know, someone else, but you knew right there in that dynamic who held the power, who could speak up and who could not speak up and that you could not seek immediately an allyship with your mother to defend you. Is that kind of accurate? Because I want that, I, I don't want that, if that's not a correct characterization of the book and what you're saying, because I then want to ask you, what role then, if any, did your father play? Was he, did you further infer that I need to be silent? I have no voice here. The coach is in, in power. So first, was that correct about your mother being disempowered and therefore you're also disempowered? Yes. And so, and the role that my father plays in all this is, I mean, he has a thread through the whole way through the book. And if I were to give it a slightly different title, my book, I would say, you know, swimming a love story, you know, just because it was the love story of like me 
wanting to please my dad. And so that's like where I took it upon myself, where like my parents, and I think generically parents are like, the coach is going, it, the, the role of a coach is to develop their child into their best and greatest good, right? And so in my dad's role with me and the dynamic that I had was the coach does that so then I can come back and and it was me chasing my dad's love. Like if I just swam better, my dad would love me more. And it's not that he never did love me. It was the, the endless more section that there never is more, it just is. You know what I mean? Like, and so but you're a child. And I want to go back real quick to step on something, you know, sort of, I, I don't know the psychologist, so thank you for sharing that. But what I find and have been around minors, right, anybody under the 18, that there's a myth in the system that implies that minors lie. And then there's a myth in the system that implies that adults don't. And I actually find that the, those two things should be turned around. And if we took minors as truthful and we took as adults as inherent liars, because the you know we all are, we just all are. And so in some way, shape or form, whether it is you're not being truthful about your emotions or whatever, there's an aspect to all of that, that we would, I think, be in a better place because we'd actually be in a position to hear what a young person has to say. And so when we're living in a world with those flipped upside down ways where, you know, if you're a young person, therefore, you know, you're not believable, then when you have that element to it, plus you see the, you know, your mother not being able to be that strong person to stand up to the coach and then see my father's idea, which is, you do what the coach says, and then if you do that, then you'll become this great athlete. And if when you become the great athlete, then I can will love you then. <laughs> right? So right, you know, so much of your story on a granular, on a personal level, reminds me of a similar journey that we're taking as a culture, and I put it within the context of this. So you have lived through the passage of here in America, I know that you spent time overseas, you know, of Title IX, which expanded the accessibility for women and girls in sports. You have also lived through the expansion, the contraction of women's rights as it deals with, you know, autonomy over their body and reproductive rights. And so on a personal sense, when I look at your story, I see as you're talking about now, you not having a voice, your mother being a woman, not having a voice, our culture expanding somewhat in the 1972 with Title IX passage, and then further on as Roe v. Wade is further defined, and then also with other Supreme Court cases in 1992. And then now, bringing us to today, you know, I, I want to draw a parallel between how we see a contracting, you know, of different rights that women have enjoyed. Does your journey do portions of your memoir also relay this expansion? So getting, finding your voice, speaking out, pushing back, and then also that wave of contraction. And I will put that one last point in a question. I recall there being 
a part of the memoir where you are in college and or you you're, you went to a college setting and you experienced some difficulties and that reminded me of this contraction in this kind of cycle that we get in so on your personal level have you would you say that your story has also tracked what culturally is going on for women yeah, there was a lot lot in there, Judy. So let me see if I can unpack it all. Yeah, no, I know. It's a lot. So first of all, without giving out my age, so the mathematicians out there, <laughs> I was uh, four in 1972. So I never had awareness of um, like girls in sport, right? I didn't mm-hmm. have an awareness of, because I just did it. And But I do believe that I was in a sport that everybody was required to learn at some level just to not, you know, just to be swimming safe, right? There's a safety element associated with it. And so um, so to pursue the sport, what I would find, though, is a difference. The dynamic between, like the triangle that I found myself in is that mostly men are coaches. And I don't know what the current data or the statistics are, but they're generally... It's probably 70% now and more youth focused is probably more women. And then it becomes more men as you become more elite in your sport across the board. And various sports will have a very, you know, a slightly different variation of that, but it's still going to be at the bare minimum a 50% male, female. It's not going to be, not really ever mostly women. Yeah, no. And and I know that from doing research for another project in relations to um, the NCAA, that they are still very heavily, even w- within the Big Ten sports, WNBA, that we still have very hev- heavily male-dominated coaches. So there has not been a lot of change. There's been some change, but not a lot of movement, but go on. So, but and the reason that I even sort of bring up those dynamics is that they- So here you have Title IX, which allows women to be in sport, but then you also have a continued overarching patriarchal design to sport. Like, so has women in sport really advanced if you don't have equality across the coaching? And if you look at, there's data and reports that have happened uh, you know, research that's come about, you know, in the last years, there's been, in the last 10 years, there's a lot more research. And certainly the last five years, there's a lot more research when it comes to sort of abuse in sports and what have you. But women coaches at higher levels are more likely to be emotionally abusive than sexually abusive. Um, and, you know, men at higher levels are more likely to be both. You just can't be sexually abused without being emotionally abused. And so, but you, you do have a propensity for that. So, which in the emotional, all coaches just need to have, there's got to be a different infrastructure completely associated with how to coach athletes um, along the way. Because the way it is right now, it's still, there's harm, there's too much harm done. But the dynamic and the triangulization is what continues to exist. And you're going to find it when there's an imbalance of anything in the system. And you're going to see more and more of this with the name and and uh, an image likeness structure that's coming about. It's creating an imbalance between the team, the coach and the players. Like all of that is changing the dynamic, which also changes your dynamic and relationship to your coach. So then it gets me back to 
what brought me power, right, as an athlete is when I knew and changed my identity. And I really talk about that at the beginning part of my book is, you know, just going from a human, right, just a human person to someone who has talent to someone who's now referring to themselves as a swimmer, right? I refer that like my identity got trans, like got transformed into that. And, you know, and so when you talk about like the expansion or the traction of it is, I think there's so many influences that are happening that one, I feel it's retracting back in many ways, because even if you look at, you know, sort of compensation comparisons, you know, I just saw something shortly about, you know, some, somebody just signed a $9.5 million contract to, you know, as a football player to, to go to college, right? Yes. Yes. That's, that's becoming pretty normalized. Yes. Yeah. Right. So now you're having, you know, sort of NFL money now, like junior NFL money going into um, the college systems now. But now you're looking at an imbalance with financial, you know, the same imbalance now is going to come with female sports versus male sports. So in that regard, I see things very much retracting. I feel like we're going to go back to, you know, ground zero, if you will, and need a whole new equality of money, you know, like, so boosters can only spend X amount of dollars and, you know, it's got to be divided up equally. And so one of the things within my book, I talk about my pursuit and that's how I ended up being vulnerable. So grooming is out there, but it was really, when I look at like what my, what was I pursuing, right? And on paper, I was pursuing an Olympic gold medal, okay? But what I was really pursuing was the idea of what that Olympic gold medal gave me. So when I talk about a goal, the Olympic, like I'm pursuing the Olympic gold medal, right? That's what I'm in pursuit of. But it's what you're in pursuit of. What does that mean? Like, what am I expecting to, what is my life expecting to be once I've accomplished that gold medal? And that ends up being what you're pursuing. And so is that kind of, that's speaking almost to this issue of identity that you, that kind of, I feel runs throughout because so much of the identification, be it from the point of a parent or the, what the, the athlete, is it not the identification with the different roles or with the sport that also can lead to abuse? Yeah. So that's where, so, so that's where, when I talk about, and this is like, when you go into a deep dive around all this, right, is when you're clear, so one of the things that I've started coaching athletes around, you know, just understanding what they're pursuing, but I just have gotten so much more involved in helping athletes in performance, but being driven from within. So they're not vulnerable to these outside influences, right? And so, but with the name and image likeness structure that we have in place is when there's money involved, it creates an illusion. And the illusion is what's going to create the harm because you're now, if there's a fantasy associated with your experience, so you're no longer in this just purity of like, you know, I would like to win, right? I'm going to focus my attention on, 
winning this race, being the best in the world, perfecting my craft, and and focused in that area. And then whatever comes of it is the bonus, right? But then we lose, and some people do have that do have that work ethic, and they're able to do that. But what I recognized, what created vulnerability for me and for my training, was it wasn't the pursuit. Like I was, I wanted to win an Olympic gold medal, but it wasn't, that's not what I wanted. I wanted what the Olympic gold medal was going to give me. Right, right. Some would argue, and not to belabor this point, some would argue that the purity of the sport has been lost for decades with the introduction, the monetization under the NAACP and under the Olympic Committee. So some would argue that, you know, I'm interested, I know that you have siblings. What if anything do you discuss in the memoir about their role? How did you see their interaction? Did they also, were they your allies? Were they kind of um, secondary role to your parents and to the coach and not really involved? What role did they play in your support system or your ecosystem? So I was set up to fail with my siblings. So they're all, they've all you know, done very well with their lives and live very, you know, stable, you know, successful lives today. And, and they support me in the ways that they do. And, and I have a good relationship with all of them. But when we were children, they had to suffer an imbalance of having to experience, you know, Annabelle this, since I was Annabelle that. You know, it was nonstop about me and my success and who I was. And so I really kind of sucked the air out of the room for them. And it wasn't by me doing it. It was by my parents, you know, investment in me as a child. And when you excel as a young person, there's a lot of focus and attention that's different that you need on yourself than when you excel as a 50-year-old, right? You know, it's just different. You know, and and the young athletes who excel and they experience like in their teenagers when they excel as a teenager and you become the best in the world or in pursuit or one of the best in the world or, you know, even top 16, 20, 25, top 50 in the world, how many people even repeat that or even accomplish that by the time they get in the 50s? So to experience such success at such a young age, it creates a, the people like the siblings around you can be like extremely supportive or they could feel, and I think in my case, they created an unfairness of attention and personal development. And as a result, I became the enemy to them, if you will. And frankly, I feel bad for them, but I, I feel they have misguided you know, they're misguided in who the influence was in that dynamic, if you will. Do you know if they've read the book or have they commented to you about the book? No, they have not read the book. My one brother bought the book and the audio version would have been much more helpful to him, put it that way. Okay. Okay. But he's got dyslexia. So for him to even read it was, I said, just read the last chapter, read the last two pages. Right. And he said it was painful, but it, and he goes, I, I just want to say, you know, we cared about you. You said we didn't care about you. And I'm like, well, I actually didn't say it that way is what I said was, as I felt that there, there was a, a spot at the end of the book where I talked about, you know, bringing up old, I was, 
inducted into, I got the Frank Irwin Award at the University of Texas. And so it's akin to being inducted into the Swimming Hall of Fame at Texas. It's, it's in, but it's not based just on swimming. It's also based on, you know, sort of personal accomplishments as well. And it's something like, that was the whole point of my swimming and pursuing, you know, within my family it was like my dad, that was the accolade that my dad wanted, you know, for me, you know, 30 years ago. And this happened 2019. So it was in fall of 2019. And uh, so I, you know, invited all my siblings and, you know, they all have children and lives and what have you. So they're busy. And, you know, one of them, he wasn't really busy, but he couldn't come and it wasn't really a valid reason and it, and it hurt. And, uh, but, you know, and sort of said it brought up that childhood uh, resentment. And so, but the resentment was, is that they, it was, I got too much from the family and it just didn't feel equal within the siblings. And so, and I think that that um, puts the pressure on the sibling when parents do that, as opposed to bringing them in and, and, you know, creating a focus. So there was competition that was created between us versus being supportive. That is going to be so helpful. You know, I'm speaking now to listeners, people that I've worked with that have siblings who have been forced to move, leave schools, leave their support systems, their friends, their community, you know, in pursuit of the other child's dreams. I think that portion of your book will speak directly to them and offer ways to cope in that this is not hopeless. What else can you share? for athletes, for individuals that can be listening, survivors that can be listening, so that they know that there is hope. You said you recommended to your brother to read the last two pages. I assume maybe that's because that may have been a hopeful portion of the book. So you have, you know, people listening to this show that have dealt with suicidal ideation attempts, you know, coming out of the abuse, being triggered, what do you have to offer them about that, about being hopeful or making it through? Well, first, I talk about all my suicidal idolizations and the thoughts and feelings associated with it all the way through my book. And so and I put in words and tell a story in a meaningful way. So anybody who has a sibling that's hurt and you're passing judgment towards them, you may not know their life experience, and I highly recommend, you know, sort of reading my version of my life story to maybe relate to one of your siblings. And if you are personally had an experience of abuse, which I'm very sorry that's the case, I also recommend it because I put words into feelings that many of us have that's been very universal and in a way that would let you be free. And so that's all we want to do is uh, be free and live a, you know, a, a happy, prosperous life. And one of the things that when I started Safe for Athletes or even before that, like what I wanted or what my pursuit was in today is to heal to the, is to be healed to the innocent soul as to which I came here with. And I know that that's a lofty goal. And I have a long way to go to get there. I want to get up in the morning and be driven out of bed versus wake up in the morning and fear the day. And so for me, that's what I want this book to be able to transform in someone's life is to be able to change their pursuit and change their direction and see hope. There's a lot of healing 
and it's a journey, but there's a lot of healing in, you know, in the road ahead and you're supported and there's people around you. There's, I mean, you know, one of the things that I recognize and I put it in the acknowledgements and is all the people that have ever, you know, sort of smiled at me or, you know, they didn't even know me. They just walked past me on the street and I may have. And it's that, and it's just like the world around me. You don't know how you impact somebody when you just throw a smile or you just say hi, or like you just have your heart open. And all those people that walked upon my path that I just don't know, they're just complete strangers. They're just people in my path that did that. I am so incredibly grateful for. I am so like thankful, but I had to have been open to receive it. And so all I, and so what I say is, may this book lead you to a way where you're open to receive those things as you head on this journey, because you have the strength to heal another person. And so for me, that's like why I do this. I walk like, like I tell you, there's another side. I tell you that there's freedom and I'm not free of everything in life. I mean, I certainly battle food issues for most of my life, but I am free from the fight and the internal battle that I have with my abuser. And that is freedom in itself. And my ability to articulate and my ability to support another person and my ability to see these things more clearly is my gift. And I felt like I had to put it all into a book to give that gift to if you're a survivor or if you know someone, it'll give you insight into the struggle that anybody who's ever experienced something like this is gone through. And it'll soften your heart at the end of the day. Maybe you'll get a, a tear along the way and um, as well. And also there's, a, there's some really high highs and there's some low lows, but it all balances out in the end. I love it. I love it. There's nothing more to say. There's no more questions. I don't even want to get your message diluted. What you said that this, what you just said, this is in my ears right now that you want the reader, you want people to wake up and not fear the day because I'm telling you, there's palpable fear out there. It's even intensified when you have survived a trauma. Thank you so much. Tell everyone again, the name of the book and it's available on Amazon. It's available. I'm sure if you just Google it, but tell everybody the name of the book again. So the name of the book is Rescue Me, a powerful memoir by an Olympian. And my name's Catherine Starr. Um, but you also can get it on katherinestar.com. You can get it on Amazon. You can get Barnes & Noble. You can get it wherever you like. Wherever you buy your books it should be available anywhere. Thank you so much for writing this. Thank you for writing this. Thank you for sharing a capsule of this. Go out and get the book, everyone. Definitely. And as always, until next time, thank you again, Catherine, for this conversation and for everyone for listening. And be well. information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.